Hey guys, welcome to our Sermon of the Week podcast. Today's message is from our guest speaker. If you're interested in partnering with us, check out our app or our website for ways to give. Thank you, thank you. Tracy and I are just honored to be here. We, uh, we book things far in advance, and that means we know where we're going most of the time before we get there a long time, and we've been looking forward to this for a long time. And when we go to a place we don't, uh, I, I, I don't come into a place with a, <clears throat> with a word that's, that's canned or scripted or things like that. I, I come in with a word that I hope is specific to this house, not just specific to this house. But what I'm going to share with you this morning, I think, is, 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 a, is a national and even perhaps global word. But um, man, I, I had such a blast with these guys this past weekend. Uh, you have an incredible, incredible ministry going on here, and uh, uh, I just want to say, just super quick, uh, a huge, huge thanks to, to Pastor Nathan. Uh, he called me. He called me a couple of days ago and said, uh, "I need, I, I need to do something here, and that is, I need to like take and prioritize time with my wife." And he goes, "Would it be okay with you if if I just let you take the service on Sunday morning, and and I can go be with her?" Okay, now you've just gone through a series on what it means to be a man. So can I tell you one major trait of what it means to be a man? When you put your wife, all of her priorities, ahead of everything else. Okay? (laughs) Even church. So a pastor who will take a Sunday off for his bride, I'll follow that guy anywhere. All right, so you guys, you guys are privileged. So, um, huge thanks to Pastor Nathan for entrusting me uh, with this, because you know we can do a lot of damage right now. So, anyhow, <laughs> not my plan this morning. Got a few things in the back. Let me just touch on these super quick. There's a there's a USB thumb drive I've had for years. It's called Project 24. In the Old Testament, in, in Genesis, God put man in the middle of a garden. In the New Covenant, God puts the garden inside of man. And out of the middle of the garden in Genesis, four rivers flowed that actually covered the entire earth. In the new covenant, you're the garden, and in you, when the Holy Spirit fills you, there are rivers of living water that come out of you that are actually meant to bring life wherever you go. 24 hours of that. Uh, Then there's uh, one here called Beyond the Veil. It's uh, a teaching on the Old Covenant Tabernacle. And, uh, and yet, the Old Covenant tabernacle was a type and a shadow of New Covenant worship. And meaning this, God set the tabernacle up in this way. It's shaped kind of like a, a human body, or like, even like a cross with the arms out like this. So you would enter the tabernacle at the feet, and the journey in worship to a greater level of holiness from step to step was from the feet to the head. And basically, it's a, it's a new covenant revelation of what it's like to actually be in worship. Today, by the way, we stepped in instantly. I don't, know, I don't know what in the world you guys have been doing around here, but most of the time, there's a progression like to kind of climb out of our humanity a little bit and to get into the mind of Christ. And what you've got going on here is rare, okay? Super rare. So anyway, that's back there. There's a teaching on uh, the book of Daniel back there, how to live in the kingdom of Babylon without compromising the kingdom of God. I don't even know we need that today. And then there's one called Restoring Revelation. It's 10 hours of teaching on the book of Revelation. It'll make the Revelation the happiest book you've ever read in your entire life. It really is. Um, there's a book back there called Reckless Grace. It's a book about reckless grace. There's a book back there called Soul I'm going to go through this super quick. It's a book called Soul Reformation. This is a prayer that Tracy prayed over herself after she'd been in a car accident had debilitating pain, chronic pain condition, and God gave her a prayer to pray specifically over herself, over her body, and she prayed herself into wholeness. Did you know it's legal to prophesy over yourself? Practice on yourself. You do it anyway, whether you know it or not. Every time you look in the mirror and say, ah, I look like a troll, that's a prophecy, okay? (laughs) Don't speak that. Bad idea. Some of you in here are like, wow, I have been prophesying over myself. <laughs> then you got to go get Botox and ah, all that stuff. Then you, you know, you end up with a face like a 14 year old and neck like a snapping turtle. It's not natural. It's like, not right. So, 
<laughs> not fooling anybody, come on. Anyway. <laughs> come back, Holy Spirit, please. Uh, <laughs> All right, one last thing I got to mention. This is, this is the thing I'm most excited about. About 10 years ago, uh, I started writing down things that I was hearing from God in the secret place with the Lord. And uh, time in the secret place, that, that's, that's, my, that's my life. That's my bread. That's, that's that time where there's no distractions from you and God. Uh, you realize that not only are you the temple of the Holy Spirit, but everything that he's made and everything that he's created actually makes everything around you filled with his glory as well. And so when I become aware that there's no distance or separation, that secret place with God becomes a place where suddenly a river of revelation starts flowing. It turns into a waterfall, turns into a tsunami, and pretty soon you're writing and recording things. You know, and the first thing you want to do is you want to share all this stuff. And one of the things about the secret place with God is that he'll start to give you revelation that you become very well aware very quickly that not everything God shares with you is meant to be posted on Facebook. When God sees that he can trust the secrets of his heart with your heart, where you'll take and, like Mary, held these things and pondered them in her heart, God will give you more. People have asked, how much of what you preach is, you know, like, how much do you get in the secret place with God have you released publicly? And I'd say, realistically, about 5%. But over the last 10 years, I would record things that were just deeply personal. 10 years ago, if I'd have published this book, I'd have been called a heretic. Nowadays, it's kind of going nuts. Um, but about three or four months ago, three and a half months ago, I'm sitting on my couch, just sitting at home, and, and I felt the Lord say, now. And I thought, now what? And I had open in front of me, I had my computer open, and I was writing things that I felt like the Lord was saying to me. And I said, now this? Publish this? I sent it to my editor, and she said, let's go. And so I didn't use my, uh, I, my, my publisher's uh, Broad Street Publishing that does the Passion Translation. I did this one completely independently without any marketing money behind it at all. I just put it out, and just other than a Facebook post, I put it out quiet. And I thought, man, this is going to get me in so much trouble. And uh, it's called Unveiled Horizons, Reflections on the Nature of God. And it's things that I've come to believe and know about my father from time in the secret place that... I just really haven't shared that much publicly. And when I put it out, within three days, without any marketing, the book went to number one in four categories. And the category that surprised me the most was New Age, which was weird, because there's no way this should be a New Age book, because the entire thing is about Jesus. <laughs> but in the last two and a half months, this has been on tops of the charts of the New Age and New Age meditation category in Amazon. And Tons of New Agers are rediscovering Jesus. And so I'm watching God do something that marketing couldn't do. So um, there are only a few copies back there. It's called Unveiled Horizon, Reflections on the Nature of God. You can pick it up on Amazon or back at the table today. If you've got your Bibles with you, would you go to Acts chapter 10? I want to share with you a word today that... Uh, well, I hope I'm going to get through this. <clears throat> There's so much gold in this that I just never feel like I have enough time. <clears throat> this book right here, this amazing book, many people have said, this is God's love letter to man. That's cute. Uh, more realistically, this is a record of God's covenants with man. You say, well, I thought it was a love letter. Listen, there's places in this book that tell me you can't eat bacon. You tell me I can't eat bacon, I'm not feeling the love, all right? Uh, <laughs> but this is a record of the covenants that God has made with man. Adam and Eve, when they sinned and disobeyed God, walked in disobedience to the will of their father, God literally initiates relationship with them with covenant. He never wanted to be distant or separate from us. The journey from the fall all the way to Jesus has been a journey from distance and separation to a revelation of union, that there's no distance and separation between you and God. And a covenant just means to, to be one, to make one. And it's, and it's typically to be one through blood. In other words, at the very deepest core of your life, you unite 
And that's what God has always wanted with us, with you and me. We were made in his image, literally animated by his spirit. His very breath is what caused us to come into being. And now, from the fall onward, we have the option of literally living life as though God doesn't even exist. It's really a stunning thing when you stop and think about it. Think about this. None of you signed up to be here. Not a single one of you filled out an application to live. You were thrust into this world through no fault of your own. You didn't get to choose your race, gender, nationality, or social status. You were basically thrust into this world, welcome to humanity, and you were given a costume, this thing right here. It's like giving the keys to a car. This isn't you, by the way. It's one of the big issues we've got in the world today is people think this is who you are, and so you figure, well, if I don't feel like myself, I'll just change this. And you change it a thousand times, you're still not going to feel like yourself because this isn't you. It's not you. This is the costume. You were thrust into the world and handed the keys to it. You wanted a Lexus. I get it. But you got a Kia. Deal with it. All right? I mean, come on. You know? I'm like, man, I was really hoping for the Rolls Royce, but what am I doing driving a dump truck? I don't know what's going on. You know, I mean, you were given the keys to a vehicle. You're driving this vehicle. Hey, wash it every now and then. Rotate the tires, keep the oil changed. I mean, that kind of stuff. You know, you care for this, but this isn't you. To commune with God in covenant relationship requires being led by the Spirit. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. That's why this morning, what we did this morning was so impactful and so powerful. Back in the day when I was growing up, we would call this the song service. Everybody had books, and we would sing. And, and listen, some of those hymns had phenomenal theology. Some of them had terrible theology. But some had great theology. I learned a lot about God by singing those hymns. But this was the song service. We'd sing a few songs, and then we get... But here's the deal. We're in a world right now where your emotions are getting hammered every single day just because you pick up this right here. And when your emotions get overworked over and over again, eventually you're like, I don't even know what's real. I don't even, even know how to feel anymore. And so today, people have shut down almost everything but outrage. And so you come into an environment like this, and suddenly the Holy Spirit of God goes, I want to commune with you. But he's not going to put you in a headlock and say, I, I force you to feel my presence. He shines like the sun. He speaks through his word. The entrance of his word gives light. His spirit permeates the atmosphere where he's given room to move. And in that space, you're invited to commune with him or not. Because the same sudden melts ice hardens clay. Somebody's standing in this room going, man, I've never felt the weight of glory like I'm feeling right now. And right next to him is standing somebody going, I wonder how long this is going to last. Why? Because you get the choice to respond to the invitation to step into a covenant union with God. And that's what we're doing right now today is we're inviting you to step into a place of a revelation of covenant union with a holy God who loves you more than you can even begin to imagine. He told the prophet Jeremiah, he said, I knew you before I even formed you which means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So then what did he know? Because what he has always known about you is the truth of who you really are. And it's one thing to hear that Jesus loves you. It's another thing to hear Jesus say, I see you and I know you and I love you. Because most of the time we hear Jesus loves you and you think, yeah, if you saw me and you knew me, you wouldn't love me. But he sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you anyway. You say, but, but even though I've done what I've done, you've seen what I've done, how can he love me? Because he made up his mind about you long before you ever got here and had a chance to do anything to try to impress him or to try to disappoint him. He knew who you were, and he knows who you are. And grace is a revelation that God is not going to let your behavior dictate to him how he can feel about you. If he wants to love you, you can't stop him. You can choose not to love him, but it doesn't change his mind about you. Mm-hmm. 
Some of you are thinking, I wish that was true. Hang on, it is. You come to a place like this, you get around people who know Jesus, they point to Jesus, they talk about Jesus, we worship Jesus. What are we doing? We're just directing your gaze. And if you don't want to change, don't look at Jesus. But if you look at him, I promise you're going to change. And if you don't stop looking, you may eventually not even recognize yourself. Because the old things pass away and all things become new as you are transformed to become what you behold. To reflect your gaze. And that's what we're doing. We're looking at Jesus. When we're talking about new covenant, we're talking about something I, I call, I call a, a, a the Christic covenant. It's a new term. I made it up. Say, so why Christic? <clears throat> because every covenant that's made in Scripture, whether it was Abraham or Moses or David, is named after the person that God made the covenant with. So the Abraham covenant is called the Abrahamic covenant. Moses is the Mosaic covenant. David is the Davidic covenant, so on and so forth. When Jesus inaugurated the new covenant or introduced us to it, he was answering what the prophets have been prophesying all the way down through the Old Testament. The Old Testament, by the way, is incredibly valuable. It's a huge question to which Jesus is the answer. And he said this himself. He says in John 5, he says, you guys search the scriptures, which was the Old Testament. He says, you guys search the scriptures because you think in them is eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. In other words, everything about this book prior to Jesus was one gigantic question to which he is the answer. And knowing the question is really important, right? So Jesus ultimately becomes the, the object of our desire in the new covenant. When he inaugurates the new covenant, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. In Hebrews, it's called the better covenant. Some people refer to it as that, the better covenant. The problem is we don't attach a name to it. You can start to think that the covenant is all about you keeping it. And the reality is, is it's actually not. According to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 6, God says through Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah to come, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. Which is fascinating. It's exactly what happened when Jesus came down the banks of the Jordan River and John the Baptist, cousin John, looks at Jesus and spilling out of his mouth says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was saying this is the sacrificial Lamb of God himself. And the ramifications are that he literally annihilates the sin of the entire cosmos. It's called the gospel. It's why it's really good news. Okay, So Jesus literally becomes that new covenant representative. So we could call it the Jesus covenant, but the study of Christ, the study of Jesus Christ in theology is known as Christology. It's not Christology, it's Christology. Blame, blame Latin for that. And, uh, and so I call the new covenant the Christic covenant. Why do I call it that? Uh, because the new covenant is not made between God and you. The new covenant is made between God the Father and God the Son. Why does that matter? Here's why. You didn't make it, so you can't break it. <laughs> it's everlasting and unbreakable, because God's not breaking covenant with himself. He's never broken a covenant before. In every covenant before that God made with man, man would break the covenant. Now we got to either amend it or make a new one. And now we have the Christic covenant, the Jesus covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Christ himself. That means it doesn't matter what you do, the new covenant is literally unbreakable. That's a huge deal to realize. You say, do you mean it doesn't matter what I do? Oh, it matters what you do. Why? Because sin doesn't change how God feels about you, but it definitely warps your perception of God. Sin will actually warp your perception to the blindness of God so badly you will run away from a God who's trying to redeem you, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. That's the danger of this thing called sin. And so the new covenant, though, literally dealt with the sin issue once and for all. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Hebrews 9 says that Jesus Christ put away sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. 
John writes in his letter in 1 John, he says, he himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And he put away sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. Based on just those scriptures and many, many more, I'd like to suggest to you a dangerous theology. I don't think we have a sin problem in the world. I think we have an identity problem. He dealt with the sin issue. In other words, he has actually torn the veil so that if you want to have relationship with God, there is nothing hindering you but you. Anybody anywhere in the deepest, darkest dungeon can say, Jesus, I say yes to you. I give you my life. Suddenly have an awareness of the presence of God. The same way that the prisoners in, in, in the prison, when Paul and Silas were in there, they're singing praises to God, and in the middle of the night, suddenly the chains fall off of everybody. The doors open on everybody, including all the guilty prisoners in the prison, but nobody leaves. Why don't they run out into freedom? Because freedom just ran into them. Right where you are, you can say, come Holy Spirit, Jesus, I give you my life, take it. I'm tired of driving my life into the ditch. In the words of a great theologian, Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) Is that the right country artist? I'm not a country guy. Anyway, you know what I'm saying? Wherever you happen to be, you can say yes to Jesus at any moment. And suddenly he's there. He shows up. What does it come through? Striving? No. Surrender. And anybody, anywhere in the earth, can surrender at any moment and step into the fruit of the new covenant that Jesus paid for in blood. The tragedy is that so many don't. And I think so many don't because they haven't seen him for who he truly is. And guess whose responsibility it is to put him on display? Not a trick question. Ours, right! It's us! That's why, that's why he, said, he said to us, he goes, as you go, like heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils, freely you've received, now freely give. And we're like, how? He doesn't bother to take us to class to teach us how to do it. He just tells us to do it like we can. Sometimes we overthink this stuff. Sometimes we get in our heads so much that we think ourselves out of the fullness of the revelation of the new covenant. So I'm going to invite you today to a renewed mind, because I'm going to tell you something that offends me about the new covenant. See, the new covenant changed everything. The Christic covenant brought us out of an old mindset of being self-centered into a new mindset of being Christ-centered. I'll give you an example. One day somebody comes to Jesus and he says, he says, Jesus, What's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, this is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many people take those two commandments and make it their church mission statement today. And it's nice. Should love God and love people. But Jesus wasn't saying, this is how you love in the new covenant. He was answering the question, what's the highest revelation of love in the law? What's the greatest commandment in the law? Of course, the greatest of all things is love, so he's revealing the highest revelation of love that the law can actually give us. But he wasn't saying, this is how you live your life under the new covenant. You say, am I not supposed to love God and love Jesus or love people? Of course you are, but here's the way you do it. Jesus later said this, a new commandment I give you. In other words, here's something I'm going to say to you now, impart to you now, release over you now, that has never been before. In other words, it wasn't available under the old covenant. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. See, in the old covenant, you love like you. You love to the best of your ability. In the new covenant, you love like Jesus. The old covenant is centered on you, self-centered. The new covenant is centered on Jesus, Christ-centered. Same thing with keeping the Christic covenant. You can't keep it. 
it is literally impossible. It brings us all to an equal place of needing the grace of God to actually even be in it. So how am I in the new covenant? By Christ alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 says, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, not your doing. When we say yes to him, all we're doing is saying yes to the yes he's been saying over us for 2,000 years. The cross was the eternal yes over all of humanity, reconciling the entire cosmos to himself. So everybody, in a sense, has been reconciled to God from his perspective, but he gives you the freedom and the choice to say no because he values freedom and he values choice. He has such a high value for freedom and choice that he literally gives you the ability to reject the free gift that he paid for in blood so that you can continue, if you so choose to do it, to walk through this life not fully knowing who you really are. So Jesus asked the disciples a question one day. He said to them, who do you say that I am? It's the same question every single one of you ask throughout the course of your life. Whenever you have an interaction with somebody, you're essentially asking them, without saying these words, you're watching how they experience you. You're watching how they respond to you. They're watch, you're watching how they answer you. How, how, everything about how they communicate with you, you're watching. Why? Because we are always asking the question, who do you say that I am? And most people determine who you are by watching what you do, because that's all they can see. So if you steal, you're a thief. If you lie, you're a liar. If you, if you commit adultery, you're an adulterer. If you murder, you're a murderer. You do all these different things, and then a label gets put on you based upon what you have done. And based upon what you have done and the labels you carry because of what you have done, then everybody looks at you and says, well, this is who you are. Can I tell you, that's not what God believes about you. He believes far more than your behavior. He thinks about you in a way that transcends time and space. He looks at who he's placed in here and the treasure of who you are. And the Bible says in Psalm 139, it says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber all the sand. The sand. I'm no expert in sand, but I do live in Florida which is just one gigantic sandbar held together by Disney fairy dust or something. I don't know. So I went out in my backyard one day, and I picked up a pinch of sand. Why did I do this? I don't know. It's futility. I picked up a pinch of sand. I brought it to my dining table, and I put it down, and I started to count. How many grains of sand could I pick up? Just one little pinch of sand. I stopped at 200, and I hadn't even gotten, made a dent in the, in the pile. And I, put every, I just put everything down and sat there for a second and felt the Holy Spirit say to me, the precious thoughts I have towards you are more thoughts than you can have in a single lifetime. My thoughts of goodness and glory over your life transcend your human existence. That's why eternity is such a big deal. Because it's going to take eternity to see the fullness of his glory and to see the fullness of the glory he's placed within you. But I felt the Lord say, if you could just believe 10 grains of sand worth, Bill, of what I think about you, it would change the way you see yourself and everybody around you. Just 10. Not, the, not my backyard, the state of Florida, or the Sahara Desert. Just 10 grains of sand. And God's not watching your behavior to see who you are. He lifts you above the things you have done. He gives you an impartation of his innocence as the old is wiped away and all things become new. In the light of his glory and grace, the reality of the truth of your identity comes to the surface. And next thing you know, you, you, you're, you're getting introduced to yourself for the first time. And other people around you start speaking the truth of what God believes about you into your life. Get around those people and hang out with them. You've been hanging out with plenty of other people who've been speaking lies over your life long enough. Hang out with people who see prophetic insight into the truth of who you really are. So, Acts chapter 10. I want to tell you, to me, the, the hardest revelation to get about the new covenant for me. This is the one that I am most challenged by. Now, I'm just going to give you the story. I'm not going to read it to you for the sake of time. I want you to read it on your own time. We're going to focus on one verse in Acts chapter 10 today. Acts chapter 10 tells the story of a man named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion, and he actually worships God 
and he gives money to bless people he's actually being paid to oppress. He's supposed to be oppressing the Jews, and he's financially blessing them. And that's kind of an odd thing when you think about it. Like, why are, why are the Roman centurions even doing this? Well, it was a Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross who looks at Jesus while he's dying and saying, surely this man is the Son of God. In other words, it was a Roman that first got the idea that, you know what, I think there is a God, and I think he's got a son, and I think we just killed him. So if you have that revelation and you're part of the Roman centurions, more than likely you'd talk about it. And there may have been a revival that happened among these Roman centurions where these guys actually start to bless the people they're supposed to be oppressing. And this guy, Cornelius, he is such a blessing to people that, that an angel appears to him one day and says, Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10, the first five verses, says, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have risen as a memorial before God. Now, God wants to do something for Cornelius. He wants to actually bring him a revelation of the Holy Spirit. And so God says to Cornelius, through this angel, he says, send down to uh, Simon Peter. He's actually vacationing down by the sea and send for him and tell him to come to you. Now, this is God kind of being ornery because Peter does not like Romans. I mean, God could have sent somebody who appreciates these people, who really wants to go to the lost. That's not Peter. Peter is the last person who wants to go to these people. And so here's the, see, God can just reach in and change your heart, but this seems to be what God likes to do. When you're going through this thing, this thing of going, God, I, I don't want to be the same as I was anymore. Change me. God will actually initiate a process that may be actually uncomfortable for you, that will confront who you think you are, so you can let go of who you thought you were to become who you really are. You say, God wouldn't be, God wouldn't be like, God is good. He wouldn't be like that. Okay, I got one word for you. Jonah. God is good and he's super kind, but he's not always nice. And he's just a little ornery, all right? In other words, he doesn't mind confronting the lies you believe about yourself. And this is the way he does it with Peter. Peter is up on the roof of this house down by the sea, and he is hangry, not just hungry, hangry. And he's walking back and forth and pacing while they're cooking dinner, and he's just, and all of a sudden, God decides to do a little play for Peter. And out of heaven comes a sheet, and in this sheet is the best cruise line buffet you've ever seen. Lobster, crab legs, you know, shellfish, bacon! Thank God for bacon. <clears throat> Everything's better with bacon. So, so here you got Peter sitting there looking at this sheet and a voice from heaven, God speaks and says to Peter, arise, kill, and eat. In other words, under the old covenant, you couldn't have any of that stuff. But we're under a new covenant now. And God says to Peter, you hungry? Have this. Here's what Peter says. No, Lord. Wouldn't it have made more sense if he'd have said, no strange voice in the sky trying to get me to break the law? And that's not what he says. He knows who's talking to him. He knows the voice of God. He says, no, Lord. Now think about this. If anybody ought to be fully into the new covenant, it should be Peter. I mean, this guy shouldn't have any foot left in the old covenant. Peter's on the Mount Transfiguration. He watched that miracle happen. He's the guy who in Acts chapter 2 stands up and preaches the very first New Covenant sermon and 3,000 people get saved. Peter literally has so much glory on his life, people are putting sick people by where he walks because his shadow is healing them. You think this guy has no issues, but God loves to work with people with issues. Uh-huh. Don't think that the guy in front of you, just because he has a microphone, has no issues. Don't ever think that just because God anoints a person, it means that they are free of issues. God's anointing on a person's life is not approval for their entire lifestyle. You say, why does God do that? Because he's trying to give you hope that he can use you too. Even in your issues. I know I'm shooting myself in the foot here, aren't I? So, so Peter is standing up there on the roof, and he's saying, no, Lord. Stop and think about that. 
When given the choice to either obey the law or obey the voice of God, Peter goes, law. God rewinds the whole play. Sheet goes back up into heaven, comes back down again. He does this three times to Peter. And each time, Peter's like, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. And finally, God says this, don't call anything that I have cleansed unclean. All right? Now, God says to him, there's some people down at the door. They're waiting to take you with them. Go with them and don't be a jerk about it because God knows what Peter's like. And so Peter goes with these guys. And somewhere between the rooftop and Cornelius' house, Peter gets a revelation. And when he gets to Cornelius' house, in verse 28 of Acts chapter 10, this is what Peter says. You know how it's unlawful for me to even be here? Like, it's against my law for me to even be here. You know, it's a great way to stand up in front of a group of people you've never preached to before. Just basically say, you know what, I don't even want to be here. I mean, that. Not a good way to intro a message. But this is now the revelation, the discomfort that he feels. But this revelation is now going to come out in these words. No longer, it's not, not lawful for me to be here. But God has shown me I'm not allowed to call any man unholy or unclean. Somewhere between the rooftop and Cornelius' house, Peter got a revelation. That little play that God did for me, that wasn't about food. It's about people. And God has shown me that I'm not allowed to call anybody unholy or unclean. Let's just pretend for a moment God came to you personally, spoke to you audibly, and said to you, hey, new rule. You're not allowed to call anybody unholy or unclean. Okay? Now, go do life. Stop and think about this. I think many of us would probably argue with God and say, have you not watched the news lately? I mean, this can't be reality. Are you saying everybody's holy and clean? Because that's not what I see when I look around. When I look around, all I see is unholy and unclean. I mean, I see sin. I see craziness. I see, I see people dying from drug addiction. I see human trafficking. Okay, God, I see political upheaval. I see satanic stuff going on. I see occultic stuff being celebrated. I see crazy identity crisis. God, that can't be reality. Wrong question. What would it be like and how would it change the way you interact with people if God just came to you and said, you're not allowed to call anybody unholy or unclean. Now, go represent me. That's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. Can I tell you where it's hardest? When you look in the mirror. Because that's where it starts. To be able to look in the mirror and go, okay, I'm not allowed to call anybody unholy or unclean. So the reality is, as many of us have accepted new covenant salvation by grace through faith, you got one foot in the new covenant, but you live with an awareness of your own shortcomings and your own sinful condition, and so you've got a foot in the old covenant that basically says, because of what I've done, God's about to drop the hammer of punishment on me any moment. Can I tell you? God is done with being your punisher. You might be your own punisher, and you might be the punisher of somebody else. But in the last 2,000 years since the cross, collectively, have we seen God drop the hammer of punishment on his people or on a nation in 2,000 years? Stop and just do a mental check and go through the calendar. You're going to be hard-pressed to find any time where you can say, I 100% believe that was God's judgment. We would be questioning. And it's very different than the Old Covenant because in the Old Covenant, when people broke the rules of the law, that's what brought judgment. In the Old Covenant, when that happened, God would send a prophet to people going, this is what you did, and this is what's going to happen. And when the prophet came to the people and said that, most of the time the people had like 10, 20, or even 40 years to repent before the judgment came. And if they repented, there would be no judgment. Talk about a ton of grace. And yet, most of the time, the people 
would just ignore the prophet or kill the prophet altogether. Then when the judgment came, they go, wow, God was super serious about that. They all turn and they repent and you have a couple of generations of awesome goodness where they're communing with the Lord again. But then Jesus shows up and now he puts an end to judgment once and for all. Now you still get punished by your sins, but you're not punished because you, of what you've done. You're actually rewarded and blessed because of what Christ has done. That's the reality of the new covenant is that your sin is not more powerful than his righteousness. The revelation of the old covenant was about the power of sin. The revelation of the Christic covenant is about the power of the blood of Christ. And his blood is stronger, faster, and bigger than your sin or anybody else's. And if we knew what his blood had done and what it paid for, we'd stop believing the lies that the enemy is trying to feed us all the time. You understand there is a devil in the world. There is an enemy. He seeks to steal and kill and destroy. And here's the thing about the enemy. The only weapon he has is a lie. The Bible says he's a liar and the father of lies. Do you know what a lie is? It's intimidation. If you've ever been in the military, then you know this. Intimidation is a low-budget resource. So let me just tell you, good news. The devil is on a budget. The only weapon he has is intimidation. If I point a gun at you, if you don't know it's loaded, you may act like it is, even though it's no threat at all. And the devil is pointing the empty gun of a lie at humanity, and we're believing it, cowering in fear. But he has literally been disconnected from a life source. So not just the devil, but every demon in hell is literally diminishing in strength while you in Christ are increasing in glory. The church is getting stronger and hell is getting weaker. How about this? How about this? The devil's actually been defeated. I know you might read a lot of books nowadays from good Christian authors that tell you differently. Why? Because fear sells books. But read the last four verses of Ephesians chapter 1 and tell me how much power the devil has. Tell me how much judgment's about to come and drop on your head. The Bible says in Christ, in the days ahead, he is going to show us the surpassing riches of his grace. Not just in this age, but in the age to come. That means from now into eternity, you actually are going to see the goodness of God get better. Stop and think about this. Some of you are like, whoa, whoa, Bill. Bill, I really, I want to see judgment come and just. God tells Peter, the most judgmental preacher of his day. Peter, new rule for you. You don't get to see anybody as unholy or unclean. You know, he did the exact same thing with the apostle Paul. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, around verse 11, says, In Christ there is no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's not even any barbarians or Scythians. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us today. But Paul picks the most hated, violent people groups of his day and says, In Christ, these groups don't even exist anymore. In other words, this is who they think they are. But in Christ, everything changes. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, from now on, in the new covenant, we don't look at the costume in order to determine who you are. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, he goes, from now on, we regard nobody according to the flesh. In other words, I don't look at your costume to find out who you are. I ask the one who made you who you are. Who do you say they are? Try this over yourself. Because until you ask the one who created you, who do you say that I am, you'll never know who you really are. Same thing about your enemies, the people that you want punished. But Jesus in the new covenant tells us how to deal with them. Love your enemies. What? That doesn't make any sense. I'm supposed to like be freed from the destructive force of an enemy. Well, here's the deal. No, in love, we get to be a living invitation for that enemy to discover he's actually your brother. A living invitation for a person to drop an old identity and lay hold of a new identity in Christ. It's not because they look at you. It's because you're pointing to Jesus.
Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 14, 15, he says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So I'm going to tell you how to be a minister today, right? Every single one of you going to tell you exactly how to be a minister today. In the Old Testament, there's a story of where the children of Israel were, were grumbling and complaining against Moses, and, and, and snakes come out of nowhere and start biting people, and they're dying. And so what does Moses and God have a conversation, and God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and anybody that looks at it will be healed. Now, if I'm Moses, I got questions. How's that work? Like, do they have to take a class about the serpent? Do they have to understand the theology behind why this works? No. Make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. All you got to do is look at it. So think about it. Let's say, let's say there's a guy named Joe, and he gets bit by a snake, and he's got like three heartbeats left. And his friend over here is just as bad off as he is. And they're dying. And all of a sudden, Joe kind of twists and turns, and out of the corner of his eye, he looks over, and he just sees the snake on the pole. And suddenly, what happens? The venom that's inside of his veins that's killing him from the inside out goes, Shh, just because he looked at it. That's it. And all of a sudden, Joe stands up and is like, whoa. Hey, Larry, I'm okay. Larry's like, what'd you do? How'd you get, how'd you, how'd you get healed? Look at that. What? No, that right there. Look at that. Don't look at me. Look at that. Larry looks over there. Shoot. Larry stands up. Now Joe and Larry are ministry team. They look at everybody dying around them and go, look at that. Look, don't look at us. No, no, look at that right there. Jesus goes, you guys want to know what I'm about to do? You guys remember the story of the serpent on the pole? The very thing you think is killing you becomes your healer. The very thing you're most afraid of, the punishment and judgment of God about to drop the hammer on you, becomes the source of your redemption. See him. That's all he says is, that is me. And our entire ministry, everything we're doing in this sermon, in this worship time today, look at him. Look at Jesus. See Jesus. And when you see him, say, who do you say that I am? And then listen. And as he answers you back, suddenly what happens? Darkness, depression, spirits of suicide, spirits of anxiety start falling off of you. Next thing you know, you discover why you're alive. And he grabs a hold of everybody. He is for all of us, even the people we think are on the outside. There's three people, I think, that represent the, the worst of humanity, according to the Bible. And something interesting happens to these three. One of them is Mary Magdalene. It's a person that she is so far gone, even the religious people and the spiritual people and Jesus' friends go, man, if he knew what she was like, and yet she breaks that jar of perfume over his feet, washes it with her hair, and Jesus celebrates her. And when they leave the house, she's the only one who smells like him. Do you know what happens to her when Jesus rose from the dead? He didn't go to the 12 disciples. There were only 11 left. He didn't go to the 11 disciples. He didn't go to anybody else. He didn't go to the house of the people who killed him to get revenge and knock on the door and say, hey, better, you better watch out. I'm coming in. Like He didn't do that. He appeared to her first. Why? Because she saw him and wouldn't stop looking. She looked at him, and even though he was dead, she wouldn't stop looking. Even though it seemed like all hope was gone, she wouldn't stop looking. There was two groups of people that even Jesus said would be hardest to get into the kingdom of heaven, beyond even like somebody like Mary. It was the rich and the religious. In John chapter 19, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate along with a man named Nicodemus. You might remember that name. And Joseph of Arimathea is a very wealthy man. Nicodemus, he's a ruler of the Jews, a rich man and a religious man. And they come to Pilate with this request, can we have the body of Jesus? Everybody else had walked away. These guys wouldn't stop looking. 
Pilate has to ask this question, is he dead yet? That's how fresh this was. Jesus' physical condition on the cross, according to the prophet Isaiah, was he was beaten beyond human recognition. That's bad. Which means if you're going to touch that body, whatever was inside of that body is getting on you. Pilate grants Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus the right to go and take Jesus' body down off of that cross and bury it. I want you to think about this. The first people to touch the body of Jesus after the new covenant was inaugurated with the words, it is finished, was a rich man and a religious man. And how many of you know they got the blood of Christ on their hands? That blood that frees us from sin, that blood that redeems us from the curse of the law, that blood that to this day has never lost its power and never will. The rich man and the religious man were probably covered with the blood of the Son of God by the time they got done preparing the body. But what? They never stopped looking. And in never stopping looking, you're changed. You're transformed. There's something that happens when you don't stop looking at Jesus. When Jesus said, it is finished, something happened in that moment. The Bible says that the veil between the holy of holies and humanity was torn from top to bottom. And people go, did it let God out or did it let man in? And the answer is yes. Now there's no distance and no separation. And no matter what any of you have done, if you've said no to Christ all the way up into this very moment, one yes is all it takes to step into the reality of the new covenant that's been paid for you in blood. Thanks for checking out our Sermon of the Week. If you have questions or would like to get connected, download our app or visit us at providencecommunity.org. Thank you.